Hey, so I'm really pleased today's guest is one of our favorite regulars on this show, JP Sears. So the world is nuts, right? JP, is, is, there, is there any hope? The world is nuts. I agree with that. And there is hope. Man, I, I think hope is a beautiful thing. And I think we have great reason for there to be hope. I mean, there's weirdos like you and I and all the wonderful people listening to this and many other warriors out there crusading for freedom and what's right. And this is my delusional perspective. Don't tell the tyrants this, but I think the tyrants are strengthening the side of the good guys because the muscle can only be as strong as the weight is heavy. We all know Luke Skywalker needs Darth Vader. So I think I think these guys are helping people like you and I and uh, other people that are on Team Humanity, helping us realize strength we didn't know we had. It's inconvenient, but I think we I have hope anyway. Where are you now, by the way? I'm in my home in Austin, Texas. How would you describe what's happened to your life and your career since the pandemic began? Yeah, what a confusing scenario. I mean, talk to me two and a half years ago. I'd be like, there's no way things are going to change that dramatically. Well, I mean, but yeah, a, a lot's changed. Two and a half years ago, did you see any of these forces gathering or were you just sort of struggling along, you know, as a comic trying to make a living doing stand up and whatever. Yeah, you know, I was cruising along and doing my best to contribute to the better world and make people laugh. And and I, you know, for a long time, Bobby. Clarify, what were you doing? Political satire? Political no. No. I wasn't doing any political satire. I was doing more like call out our egotistical nature as it shows up in the spiritual life, the health world, kind of the conscious living world, all the stuff I was in still uh, important to me, but I never was into politics, but I will say I was aware of corruption. My nose wasn't in it nearly as much as it is now, but I knew the FDA with the food industry, the chemical industry, the farming chemical manufacturers, Monsanto, I knew that kind of corruption was there. So I wasn't eyes completely glazed over, but the forces that we see in our world today, trying to do the great reset kind of garbage, I had no idea that was orchestrated, but then you know, spring of 2020 hits. And the biggest thing that changed in my life was an internal realization that freedom is my number one value and I can't take freedom for granted. And I've got to do something about freedom my, my in my own small way. So my professional landscape completely changed where now almost entirely my comedy and my content is about calling out corruption and standing up for freedom and giving the little guy a voice. My world's completely changed and I don't like the corruption, but I would say some silver lining, my world's changed for the better. I've gotten stronger as a person. I've connected to like-minded, like-hearted people like you. It's kind of like we're in the foxhole together. 
So there's certainly been some positives. You know, I've never talked to you about this, but you, from the first time I saw you, you were a real kind of symbol of hope to me because being a student of history, I know that rebellious movements throughout history, that the first time that they really have traction and they're taking hold is that artists and comedians and musicians begin to find inspiration in those struggles. And you were really the first comedian to come out and start doing the job of comedians throughout time with the most important job, which is, I mean, it's very important to make people laugh, but it's also political satire and ridiculing our leaders and accumulations of power is one of the duties of comedians. That's where Lenny Bruce and a million other important comedians played such critical roles in changing the political dialogues in our country and, and other countries. And one of the, and, you know, gradually we've seen, you know, more and more musicians and artists migrating over and finding inspiration in this struggle. But I live in a world where I'm surrounded by comedians and I have been for most of my adult life. Many of my friends are professional comedians. I've met my wife through Larry David. Uh, my wife is a comedian. Her friends are all comedians. Kind of one of the noteworthy dynamics or features of this dynamic is how slowly the major comedians have been to come around and how how plugged into the to the orthodoxies they are you know people like who were real social critics like Stephen Colbert and you know Trevor Noah and all of these people who were who were once dissidents themselves and now have become kind of embrace the the orthodoxy yeah yeah it, it's wild and and I don't know Stephen Colbert Trevor Noah personally yet looking at their work it's it's very uninspiring lately and and i think a any comedian needs to ask his or herself am i serving the people or am i serving something else if we're serving the people the number one principle of comedy is at play and that's the truth principle any good joke will be rooted in truth now, oftentimes that's an unseen truth. So revealing it creates a, the movement of laughter. But if a comedian, maybe he's on the network like Stephen Colbert and he's looking at the check and says, whatever you think I should say, I'll go ahead and say that. I don't know. But if that's his reality, he's not using the truth principle anymore. He's using the narrative principle. And the narrative principle is not funny. It, so we, we look at some of these comedians and some of these Saturday night live shows that once upon a time were very funny because they served people with the truth principle. And we look at it and we're like, well, that's a comedy show, but where's the comedy? I see them shaming non-narrative believers, but there's... And bullying. I mean, it's really, yeah. it bullying little people and that's not what they're supposed to be doing bullying powerless people saying people should lose their jobs people should be punished from Howard Stern to Jimmy Fallon to you know all of them are kind of they're not dissident forces anymore they're, they are um, 
They're the king's jesters. I mean, even the king's jesters traditionally was supposed to be making fun of the king. He was the only person who was allowed to do it. That was his job. Yeah. Well, they're not even king's jesters. They're just propagandists. It's very yeah. coward-filled yes men who are dressed up in the jesters' clothing. And if, <laughs> I think we can ask ourselves with the narrative-based comedians, where's the money trail and where's the courage trail? I, I mean, there's two factors at play. What's the money influence? Just like the pharmaceutical industry, what's the money influence getting people to do and say things that are not aligned with truth? And that my dog's chiming in because he likes to make my life hell. That, then the other thing is, where's the courage trail? It takes no courage to speak the truth when it's easy to speak the truth. When you're rewarded for speaking the truth, it takes a hell of a lot of courage to speak the truth when it's hard to. And not just when you're not rewarded for speaking the truth, but what happens when you're ridiculed for speaking the truth? What happens when you have a sense of, I could, I could lose things. I could lose everything if I speak the truth. It takes a lot of courage to do that. And we're seeing some people's true colors here. And some people, it's taken them a while to wake up, but now they're waking up to reclaim their truth, reclaim their courage, and they're taking the truth principle in comedy again. So yeah, that, that's how I see it. There's narrative-based comedians or truth-based comedians. And it, it's been kind of, I mean, let's be honest, it's been kind of a gift to you because this is, you know, the official orthodoxy is really a target-rich environment for yeah. comedy. I mean, almost everything they do every day is a potential, it's a potential bit. It is. And uh, and you don't have any competition. You know, you're there. <laughs> but you don't even have to be really funny. You just have to basically... You read the newspaper you're uh you're 100 right there there's no very little competition and the the comedy writes itself i mean the things that are happening so much with uh, the administration the world economic forum it's so exaggerated that it's almost not believable that it's reality and part of comedy it can be at times you're exaggerating things so it's like whoa this they're writing it, it's writing itself. And you look at the hypocrisies that are involved, how they show up all the time. It, it really does write itself. I mean, I think you saw that video I put out called, is Klaus Schwab the most dangerous man in the world? Some of this stuff, this- What was the, what was the name of his, his little guru that you had on there who was really, I mean, that I think I it's, that guy is just a war criminal waiting for the war. He, he is Dr. Noah Harari. Yeah, so you, you, you look at this guy, Noah Harari, you look at Klaus Schwab. I just showed video clips of them in this comedy video. Then I did a little commentary, but these guys are just insane people. Like they couldn't even be cast in the Austin Power movie as Dr. Evil. They're too exaggerated as characters. So my job, it, it had you're right, it has been easy. There's a relative monopoly and the stuff, it just, it writes itself. I really look forward to the day 
hopefully in the not too distant future where it's really challenging to write comedy again. The world will be in a great place when it's hard again. What about Klaus Schwab? I mean, these guys are, they really are like Dr. Strange of figures, even with the accents and the, you know, the weird mannerisms and just the sinister kind of chuckles and, you know, the, the dog whistle signaling that they're doing to the elites that where they just, they're admitting that, you know, we want to turn you all into robots. Yeah. And so that we can make you slaves to, to these elite totalitarian classes. I mean, people, it's really weird how people nowadays will say to you, oh, you believe in the Great Reset, as if it's a conspiracy theory. You wrote a book called The Great Reset. <laughs> it's a conspiracy theory to believe it doesn't exist. You got the evidence. It's a book. You buy it on Amazon. It's called COVID-19, The Great Reset. And he says, don't let a good crisis go to waste. It, it really is ridiculous. And, you know, Bobby, I look at some of the things that Klaus Schwab and people in his category say, and it, it seems like they're leaving a trail of evidence. I mean, literally talking about uh, people won't have free will anymore. They'll be plugged into the a cloud. Uh, will have tracking chips in people. Obviously, two years ago, this was all conspiracy theory, but you know, I'm starting, I don't believe in reality anymore because it's just less accurate. But you look at all this, and, and my first question is, why are they saying this out loud, especially in front of a camera? They're leaving evidence. They're literally telling the world the nefarious things they're doing. And some people have shared the opinion with me. I, I can't validate this or not, but there's some theory going on around out there that says the, these people, part of their code is they have to tell people what they're doing. Now they kind of, a piece here, a piece there, a piece there. So it's not one unified body of here's the plan, but they have to drop pieces of what they're doing in order for it to all be considered consensual. Now, manipulation and coercion for me, that's not consensual, but again, I can't confirm or deny this, but it's, it's an explanation for why they would say the outrageous things that they're actually doing. That to me, a sane person would say, well, if you're trying to get away with what you're doing, like, don't say any of it out loud. I don't know. So let me let me play this tape, you know, the Harari tape, so people can hear what, what these guys are actually saying. Yeah, of course. Science is replacing evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds. Oh, you are playing god. Say more. Evolution by natural selection with evolution by intelligent design. Not the intelligent design of some god above the clouds, but our intelligent design and the intelligent design of our clouds, the IBM cloud, the Microsoft cloud, these are the new driving forces of evolution. It's a lot of evidence. Surveillance, people could look back in a hundred years and identify the coronavirus epidemic as the moment when a new regime of surveillance 
took over, especially surveillance under the skin. My brain, my body, my life, does it belong to me or to some corporation or to the government or perhaps to the human collective? This guy's revealing the whole plan. He's gonna ruin it. Humans are now hackable animals. You know, the, the whole idea that humans have, you know, this, they, they have this soul or spirit and they have free will and nobody knows what's happening inside me. So whatever I choose, whether in the election or whether in the supermarket, this is my free will, that's over. Free will, that's over. It will indeed be over. So, you know, you, you made the point before we played that tape that it's very strange to have these, these kind of sinister people actually telegraphing very, very clearly and precisely what they are going to do to us if we let them. And it's shocking to hear them say that and, and to see what they've actually gotten away with over the past two years in terms of putting their plan in place. Um, and then Chris Shaw and a number of the doctors from the Catholic Doctors Association, Chris Shaw, is, he's a brilliant, brilliant professor in British Columbia. He went and did research and found that for 15 years, the WHO had been issuing grants to scientists to develop these tetanus toxoid sterilization vaccines. They published dozens and dozens of studies. And he then did a peer-reviewed study outlining all the previous studies. It was something that you would assume they should have kept hidden but they were doing it right out in front of us. And even the gain of function studies that you know were coming out of Wuhan and were funded by Tony Fauci, they were publishing these. So anybody can go out and read them and it's very hard for them to cover their tracks, but it's a weird impulse that they have to, it's either an impulse or the signaling mechanisms when they're gonna do something truly horrific. They make no effort to hide it. Yeah, and, and it's almost like they make an effort to reveal a little bit of it. And obviously not their intention of it, but a little bit of it. And I think so I, I hear so many people bring up Bill Gates's TED talk where he says we're gonna use vaccines to reduce the world's population. Now, Bobby, I may not be a smart man. But I do believe a good vaccine is meant to improve people's health, which would presumably keep them alive rather than making them dead. But if you want to reduce the world's population with vaccines, how does that work? Uh, it's a, it, it seems like it's another piece of the same phenomenon. Here's the convoluted explanation Gates has retroactively made about that. He said that in poor countries, people have many, many babies because there's a high mortality rate in their children. And therefore they need to have more babies in order to make sure they are taken care of in their dotage. And if you give vaccines to children, it will preserve their life and the parents will no longer feel that they need to make so many of them. So that is this convoluted and very, very dubious explanation about what he really meant. But at the same time, they made a big effort to get rid of all those. We actually grabbed that video and you can see it on CHD's website, but it's hard to find on Google these days. It's hard to find anywhere else. And it is a very, very damning 
the mission, particularly given his long, long history. His father was the head of Planned Parenthood in the Pacific Northwest. He comes from a long line, as I show in my book, of eugenicists. And he has, throughout his lifetime, talked about, alluded to eugenics as something that, you know, is important and population control. He's also funded huge programs throughout the world for Depravero, which is a very, very dangerous drug that is meant to sterilize women. And he gives that to millions of, at least temporarily, but often it does so permanently. It's given only to poor women and only to dark women around the world. Many of the European countries have have outlawed its use, particularly since it was being used just to control black populations. But he has, you know, the Gates Foundation has funded these programs like the tetanus program in the Philippines and Mexico and Nicaragua, all over the world. And it's clear from, he cannot conceal the fact that this has been his central preoccupation throughout his career and that supposedly poverty is another one. Also in my book, you know, I look at the actual performance of his vaccines. And if you look and we go vaccine by vaccine, what the science says in almost every case, vaccines are, are causing more fatalities than they're averting. In some cases, dramatically more fatalities. So it's, I don't try to look into his head and I do not understand what, how he thinks, how he views the world. I have some hints about it, but what I do is I detail his conduct and his choices, yeah. and consistently those choices are about controlling population through these kind of sneaky programs that trick people into, into taking drugs that will prevent them from having children. Yeah. You, something I'm wondering about, I, I don't know if you have any speculation on this or, or not, I'd be curious if you do. But his why behind wanting to control the world's population, you know, is it a smaller population is simply easier to dominate and control? Is there, does he actually think, well, I'm helping save the globe by killing off a bunch of people? I'm curious if you have any speculation about his why. You know, I really make a point to not speculate, but if you look at, he has very, very strong ties from, from his youth to the Rockefeller Foundation. And the, for the Rockefeller Foundation, eugenics has been a preoccupation since its inception. And his father also had that preoccupation with birth control. As I said, he was the head of Planned Parenthood. So I think uh, Gates grew up in this milieu of what you see really the consistency in almost all the things he's done, the, beginning with Microsoft, uh, but also his food programs, which all of the things he does, basically, he looks at a problem. He has a top-down technological solution. So he has a very, very strong faith in technology. And I believe this almost kind of megalomaniacal belief that he is ordained by God to save the world, to solve this problem, which only he has the genius to solve. That's what it looks like. 
and that you've heard people say, I don't like people, but I love, I love humanity, but I don't like people. And he, he seems like one of those guys who he's trying to do something good for all of humanity, but people are getting in the way and they are, they're kind of. Kill these people. They're hurting my ability to help humanity. They're kind of collateral damage. And, you know, if you look at his food program, which is called the Green Revolution, where he partnered with the Rockefeller Foundation, it's all about technology and then a partnership with large corporations. So he makes these big investments in McDonald's, in Kraft Foods, in Cargill, in Monsanto. And then he goes to Africa and he says, we're going to lift you out of poverty. You uh, buy Cargill's GMO corn, you buy Monsanto's glyphosate and pesticides. We're going to give you, we're going to create supply chains for chemical fertilizer. You switch away from subsistence crops like barley, sorghum, cassavas, plantains that you and your ancestors have successfully survived on for 20,000 generations. And you grow GMO corn and we're going to get McDonald's and Kraft to buy it and and we are going to lift you out of poverty. And that is kind of his promise. And by the way, he makes big investments in the companies that are going to profit from those transactions. So he calls it philanthrocapitalism because he can do well for himself by doing good for others. This is what his philosophy is. He did the same thing with vaccines. He invested in Sanofi, Merck, Pfizer, Gilead, all the major vaccine makers. WHO can control all the African governments because it's paying for their HIV programs and their health ministries. So he makes WHO make these deals where they, he says, you have to give to 80% of your population, you have to give DTP vaccines and hepatitis B vaccines, which my companies are going to make. And until you show you've given them to 80% of your population, you are not going to get the money for your health ministries, et cetera. So he leverages his control over WHO to impose these strictures. And he's moved WHO out of its traditional occupations with food, with nutrition, with agriculture, with clean water, with hygiene, and you know, building markets, economic development. He has these formulas where he invests in the company, he takes the technology, he imposes the technology to solve a problem, but there's never any accountability. He's never actually saying, are more people healthy because it is. And when you start looking at that metric, he has been a global catastrophe, like a typhoon or an earthquake or a tidal wave. He's made populations sicker, not better. And with Microsoft, he had the same kind of ruthless approach to education. His education was, I own Microsoft. I'm going to invest in the core curriculum. That means giving Microsoft software to all the kids. They get hooked on it. And so it's the same kind of approach in all of its things. He owns a company, they have technology, it's going to solve a world problem, and he imposes that solution on everybody. And in fact, if you want to solve poverty, it's a very, very complex issue. And it's almost always locally and democratically based. The good solutions, the enduring ones, rather than being imposed from above. Yeah, a lot of our problems in a big picture kind of way, seem like they're caused by over-centralization 
but decentralizing, getting more local rather than global seems to be a fairly basic yet important direction for us to go, not the Gates direction. What, did you see recently our friend Bill? He is on stage uh, looking like a heap of garbage, uh, no judgment there. And someone was interviewing him and he starts to basically be condescending towards people for not wearing a mask, analogizing wearing a mask is like wearing pants. No, I didn't see that, but do describe it. Oh, it, it, just beautiful. Just in his condescending way. He's like, why is wearing a mask so hard? I mean, I mean, it is hard. I mean, gosh, people can barely wear pants. I mean, we ask them to do that. So why is it so hard to wear a mask? And then all these allegations come out about his former employees accusing him of sexually coming on to them. So I love the poetry of it all because it's like, well, Bill, apparently it's hard for you to wear pants. So game set match, Bill. So it was, when did you know that you were funny? Uh, I still haven't figured it out, Bobby. Now, you know, I, I remember as a kid, even a, I would even say first grade, having awareness of I'm, I'm one of the funnier ones and I know how to do funny. I know how to make people laugh when, when I want to. And then I remember during elementary school and certainly through junior high and high school, I was never really that interested in learning what they were teaching, but I wanted to entertain myself. So I, I would do this sort of tightrope act of occasionally saying things out loud, you know, pattern interrupt, where the, the goal was I need to make the teacher laugh. Because if everybody else laughs, but the teacher does not laugh, then I get in trouble. But if everybody laughs and the teacher laughs too, they're in a state of mind where they're not going to be angry at me. They're literally joyful. So if I can, and of course the teacher's typical demeanor is like, I'm not supposed to laugh at a disruptive student. So it's like a formidable opponent, like, cool, they've got the, the guarded walls up. Can I penetrate this? So I remember like very deliberately practicing comedy as a way of trying to entertain myself going through school. Oh, I had dinner with Mike Binder the other night, who's a stand-up comedian, and he does a lot of the HBO specials. And he had just come from having dinner with Norman Lear, who I've known for many, many years. But they started talking about, about what, how Norman Lear is so healthy and so vibrant. I, I think he's 94 years old, very, very old and still very active. And Norman Mir said, ask me why I live this long and why I'm so healthy. And Mike asked me, he said, it's because I laugh a lot. Yeah. And I think that's true. That laughter is like medicine for people. You know, I'm really proud of my wife that she makes people laugh. And I always tell her, because she says to me, the stuff you do is important. And I say making people laugh is even more important. It saves lives. It's medicine. Well, it, it's all medicine. What you do, there's nothing funny about what you do, Bobby. <laughs> Thank oh. God you do it. I, I couldn't do it. But it's all it's all important. You know, I look at what you do, what a comedian does, making people laugh. We're we're all in a symphony. We're all playing the same song, 
We're just playing different instruments. And the, the symphony would sound out of balance. It wouldn't sound as good if the trombones weren't over there or if the drums weren't over there, or the saxophone or the flute section. We need it all. I mean, one unto itself is great, but to be balanced, uh, I think humanity needs every instrument playing in the orchestra from comedic to serious to law, music, just all, all the things. Yeah. When, I, when did you figure out that you could get amazingly rich doing comedy? Yeah, well, by the way, if any networks are watching, I want you to know, give me a check big enough. I'm going to stop calling out the tyrants. I'd be happy to put me on after Stephen Colbert. <laughs> no, you know, we live in a different age where I think it used to be, I, I know it used to be in comedy, probably most entertainment, you had to be discovered by someone else. You had to use the system to make money. But we live in, well, a much more decentralized time where now, assuming you're not completely kicked off all social media, a comedian can put themselves out there and basically take control of their own destiny. And if there's a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, the comedian, myself, form a business around what we do. You know, it's been, I, I think it was 2017, I let go of my coaching practice. Yeah, I've been doing comedy professionally for about seven and a half years. But before that, I was a health coach, life coach. So a few years into comedy, as I accidentally started it, never had a plan. That's when I let go of my coaching practice and realized like, oh, I can, I, I'm not, I not only can make a living doing comedy, but I'm starting to make a better living than what I was doing before. And yeah, you know, the world has been really great for me. The so many supportive people supporting me in my work, watching my videos, supporting me through buying my merch, coming out to my comedy shows. It's really been a joy. So, you know, the past few years. How, how about your wife? Does she still laugh at your jokes or is she like done with it? No, she doesn't, she doesn't <laughs> think I'm very funny. Which is obviously, I need her to see a, a psychiatrist because obviously something's wrong with her that she doesn't think everything I say is funny. But we have different senses of humor. But what I do know is when I make my wife laugh, whatever I just said is a good joke because probably 80 to 90% of what I say, like she appreciates it, but she's not roaring in laughter. And I think part of the equation, Bobby, it feels like now I'm in a like marriage counseling session. I think part of the equation is I'm predictable for her. You know, it, it's kind of like if, if someone tickles you, like you laugh, you squirm, like it, it literally tickles you. Like it's a physical sensation of laughter is tickling. But if you try to tickle yourself, it doesn't really work because you're so predictable, you're in complete control. But to make someone laugh, there has to be an element that they don't feel in control of. Therefore, there has to be some level of unpredictability. Surprise. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I think I've become pretty predictable to my wife. And how about your siblings? Do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have one sister. She's a year and a half older than me. 
And does she think you're the funny one in the family or that she's the funny one in the family? I think she, she'd be willing to say I'm the funny one. And she's got a great sense of humor herself, as does my dad. And I always say anything funny about me, I got from my dad. Anything kind about me, I got from my mother. And where are your mom and dad on the, you know, the whole pandemic thing? You know, they're, they're not exactly where I'm at, but they're also not eyes glazed over believing everything CNN has to say. I, I think they're somewhere in the middle. And, you know, one of the things I love about my parents is, ooh, I'm you know, very blessed. They're both still with us. They may not agree with everything I say, but they accept me. And I certainly don't agree with everything they say and do with regard to the whole pandemic, but I accept them. And I think my family, we realize we're not going to be tricked into being divided against each other. And that seems to be part of the intended orchestration, get people to divide if they're not believing the narrative. But yeah, we're not going to fall for that. You know, as a family, we just want to love each other. And, you know, I've never met someone who I agree with about everything. I don't even agree with myself about everything. I change my mind about things all the time. It's, thank God, it's called learning and growing. So I don't look like a complete nut job to them. They don't look like a complete nut job to me, but we're, we're not super eye to eye about all things. We're, yeah, we've got our differences, but we're in the same ballpark. Where are you today on the Ukraine? The one thing I know is that I don't know anything. What I do know is what the the propaganda is. What I do know is the news wants us to believe, right or wrong, but they want us to believe Russia and Putin is bad. Ukraine and Zelensky are good. And I get <laughs> I get suspicious about, all right, you want us to believe that. Well, maybe that's the one thing not true. Something that that mattered to me, Bobby, uh, Tulsi Gabbard put out a video talking about uh, Ukraine President Zelensky, how he has locked his political rivals in prison and isn't democratic in that sense, maybe has the front of democracy. But I paid attention to that video she put out. And I don't know the absolute truth. All I know is this is Tulsi Gabbard. And here's what she's saying about this man. And the news is broadcasting nothing along these lines about Zelensky. So I'm curious, you know, one thing I do know is a World War III isn't something I support by any stretch. I'm curious, where are you at on Ukraine? Uh, I, I feel the same way. I mean, listen, if you say, if they do the same tactics, if you say anything that is questioning of the orthodoxy, it means you're pro, pro Putin. And they did the same thing to me on vaccines. You know, if I didn't just completely buy the orthodoxy, I was pro measles and pro chicken pox and you know, pro polio, right? And you can't have a nuanced conversation where you can say, yeah, what was the U.S. role in, you know, in the coup in 2014? And what has, where have we been with these, you know, with uh, 14,000 ethnic Russians being killed 
you know, in Donbass and Odessa and the Crimea over the past six years? And how did it, it, it did it contribute to Putin's decision that we moved, we violated our promise to not move NATO one inch to the east and instead we went in and signed up in countries that were all former Soviet satellites and then you know, so there's a, there's complexities, and I have a historic perspective. I always remember very, very clearly in 1962 during the Cuban Missile Crisis, when we almost, there were 11 of the 13 people in my uncle's XCOM committee who were the chief panjerums of the, of the military and the intelligence community who all said, we've got to invade Kashmir and bomb him. And it was because the Russians put missiles in Cuba, which were, it was only 1,100 miles from Washington. Now we have missiles and bases and but in countries that are many of them a few miles from Putin's borders. So reason that Khrushchev went along with putting the missiles into Cuba is because we had put Jupiter missiles in Turkey. And my uncle was able to make a deal with him where we would pull the missiles out of Turkey if he pulled the missiles out of Cuba and we agreed not to invade Cuba. And my uncle happily agreed to those things. And so my uncle always said, President Kennedy always said, you need to put yourself in the other guy's shoes. And my uncle also said he believed the most important role of president is to keep our nation out of war. So I'm an anti-war person just by nature. I didn't want to go into the Iraq war. I spoke out against it. We're finally, after 20 years, getting out of Afghanistan, the longest war in our history. Why can't we even wait six months before we go into another war? And Afghanistan or in Iraq, you had this wall of propaganda where Fox News and CNN and everybody was saying, we got to get Saddam Hussein. He's a bad guy. He's the bad guy. But, you know, there was no real articulation of, okay, what did he do to us? He had nothing to do with the World Trade Center. He had nothing to do with the anthrax attacks. We went in there, and many people regard that as the worst foreign policy blunder in American history. And so I think, you know, and the newspapers all then had to apologize for it, for their role in, in greasing the skids for this propaganda campaign. And I think we really need clarity before we pick another fight. We need to know what are our objectives. Is the objective to save human life in the Ukraine? Is it to establish U.S. hegemony over Europe? Is it to gain control of the energy supply in Europe? Is it to do regime change in Russia and get rid of Putin? Those are things we ought, ought to understand from the outset and that we ought to have a debate about in front of Congress. We ought to have an open debate in, the, in front of the American people. And that people who question the orthodoxy should not be silenced. They should not be censored. They should be welcomed. We need to have a debate. So I don't have any answers, but I do have what you have is I, I have a lot of questions. Well, well said. And, and I think we need access to our own minds in order to have the debate, in order to, you know, when well-being and lives are on the line, we need to have a functional level-headed debate. 
and and the idea that we should invade a country preemptively just because there's a bad guy running it, I I think America needs to get past that idea. We are not the policemen of the world. Yeah. And we should not be having military bases in countries all over the world. We need to protect our borders. We need to we need to make ourselves a fortress and then we need to focus on growing our middle class on building infrastructure in this country on building schools and bridges and roads and on making america a template for the world so that we're not imposing democracy and our values at the end of a gun but we're inspiring people to adopt them through our own example and, you know, I think that's the kind of foreign policy that America should have, which is a really strong domestic economy. And, you know, we've hollowed out the middle class in this country in order to pay for the military over the past 30 years. And, you know, in America is not, doesn't have the freedom or the prosperity it once did. And those are, that's not a good outcome. That's the outcome of, of being the policeman of the world. So anyway... I'm curious, real quick, what do you, when it comes to the narrative about Russia and Ukraine, you know, the basic Russia bad, Putin bad, Ukraine's good, without your uncle's wisdom of put yourself in the other person's shoes to understand, I, I see some of the people just buying into the narrative hook, line, and sinker. They've just come off two years of having their eyes pretty open to the COVID narrative, like, oh, I can't trust the news. I see what they're doing with COVID. They're full of crap. Then the Russia stuff comes out. And they're like, oh my God, really? That's what's going on? What, I was, like, how does that happen? Yeah, it's interesting because there were two polls that came out this week that showed that people who were unvaccinated were much more skeptical about, about U.S. going into, into the Ukraine. Okay, Interesting. And in both U.S. and Canada. And, you know, the, the conventional narrative is that those it's because they're all right-wing Trumpers. But I think, you know, political parties have almost no meaning or relevance uh, to this issue. I think those are people who have an ingrained skepticism toward government pronouncements and that they are with the vaccines and now with the Ukraine they're sitting back and saying, wait a minute, I do not believe everything you're telling me. I have questions about it. I don't like the fact that those questions are being censored. And I don't, I'm not going to go along with your narrative without some real convincing justification and debate. And I, I think that's what's happening. That makes sense. Yeah. Listen, my friend, it's really good to talk to you again. You've been an inspiration to millions of people in this movement, and I want to thank you for pointing out the hypocrisy, for, for speaking truth to power. You're an amazing leader. Thank you, J.D. Sears. How are thank you, Bobby. Tell people where they can find you. Yeah, the best place to find me is my website, awakenwithjp.com. And that's got, that's the hub with all the other video outlets and everything that I do. So if you want to check me out, you can find me at awakenwithjp.com. And if you're allergic to redheads, offended, or don't like what I do, then avoid awakenwithjp.com. Well, they can just listen to you without having to look at the dough, right? That's right. <laughs> that actually is a good remedy. Thanks so much. Appreciate you, Bobby. Talk to you.